This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Becoming a commercial pilot can be a very challenging profession with many barriers of entry. It requires a great deal of dedication and many hours of training. And for decades, it has largely been a male-dominated profession. However, more women, in particular Native women, are entering careers as commercial pilots. In this hour, we take to the skies as we talk with Native women about what it takes to be a pilot. Join us after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. California tribal leaders and state lawmakers are advocating for legislation to help law enforcement and tribes locate missing Native Americans. They're gathering in Sacramento Tuesday to announce the Feather Alert Bill, which will be heard before the Senate Public Safety Committee. Tribal leaders gathered at the state capitol in May, urging legislators to take more urgent action on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Chairwoman Janet Bill of the Picayune Rancheria of Chukchansi Indians was among leaders to testify at a May 4th hearing in the Select Committee on Native American Affairs. She urged lawmakers to partner with tribes to help address MMIP in California. I am standing ready to not only keep the dialogue going, but ready to roll up my sleeves to get work done and work tirelessly with you and other key stakeholders to ensure that this happens. This is an issue that will take every single one of us to come together and solve. Therefore, it is incumbent upon tribes, the state, other key stakeholders to partner and work together to make this silent epidemic a top priority and give it the attention our people deserve. Chairwoman Bill is joining other tribal leaders and lawmakers to announce the Feather Alert Bill. The legislation by Native American Assembly member James Ramos seeks to create an alert system to issue advisories to help law enforcement and tribes locate missing people. Ramos, in a statement about the bill, said, There's much work to do, but this is one step that can help. A Native American organization in Montana is hoping to increase voter numbers after low turnout during the June primary. Eric Tigadoff has more. Keaton Sunchild with Western Native Voice says numbers were low even for a midterm primary at 21 percent of Native American precincts in Montana. He says new election laws likely affected numbers, especially an end to same-day voter registration. Sunchild notes same-day signups are used frequently by Native Americans who often live in rural areas and only make one trip to the polls. Certainly disappointed with how low the turnout was originally, but we also recognize that there were some new barriers put in place, some confusion with the laws and various lawsuits. Restrictive election laws were passed by Montana legislators in 2021, but an injunction had been in place blocking those laws, including an end to same-day voter registration. However, the state Supreme Court overturned the injunction in May, allowing the restrictive laws to go into place before the primary. A trial is expected on these laws later this summer. Western Native Voice is setting up voting kiosks on reservations across the state to ensure people are registered before Election Day. Sunchild says the organization is looking at the data and determining where their work will be most impactful. For instance, the Rocky Boy Reservation Precinct had the lowest turnout among tribes in the primary at 7%. Doing things proactively rather than reacting is going to be key in these next few months. I'm Eric Tegadoff. 
The University of Arizona on Monday announced a new program to cover tuition and fees for full-time undergraduates from Arizona's 22 tribes who study on the university's main campus in Tucson. Starting in the fall, new and continuing full-time students may be eligible for the Arizona Native Scholars Grant. According to the university, it's the first program of its kind at a public Arizona university. The program is among initiatives at the university to serve tribes and Native students. More than 400 Native students were enrolled last year. Future plans may include expanding the tuition program for graduate students. A U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs field hearing is taking place Tuesday in Minnesota at the Shakopee Mittawakanton Sioux Community. Senator Tina Smith is chairing the hearing to focus on how tribes can use funding for infrastructure needs. Minnesota tribal leaders and federal officials are expected to attend. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With so many organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. So AARP brings together no-charge employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, discounts, and more at aarp.org slash veterans who support this show. Support by Ameren, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Ameren.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. For many remote Native communities, like in Alaska and Canada, aircraft are a vital link with the outside world. And over the decades, a growing number of Native people have become commercial pilots, transporting food, supplies, and other necessities. Overall, the profession of commercial piloting is male-dominated. And while there have been pioneering Native female pilots, statistics show that women are underrepresented in the field. However, that could change as more Native women take an interest in aviation. Today, we'll talk with some Native women about what it takes to be a pilot and hear about their experiences flying over the Arctic wilderness and tundra. But we also want to hear from you. Are you a pilot? If so, do you have a favorite story from your time in the sky? We want to hear it. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. If you go to NativeAmericaCalling.com, you can also listen to a previous show about Alaska bush pilots from August of 2019. We're going to talk with three commercial pilots today, and I'm super excited to learn more about these women and their flying. First up is Delana Fox. She is Yupik, a Yupik commercial pilot from Palmer, Alaska. Delana, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us, what got you into flying? Uh, I grew up in Kipnik, which is only accessible by airplane. It's a really small village of about 650 people now. Um, and I was always traveling in small planes just to get to a hospital or just whether um, I'm flying through to get to Anchorage. Um 
I felt like I was always exposed to flying, and I thought it was really cool to consider getting into. Delana, you grew up in a in a rural community, only accessible by a plane, and, and there's quite a few of those up in Alaska. So, are are pilots are, are they very well respected? And is there a lot of status in in being a pilot in a community such as yours, where aircraft are so so vital? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I was always my dad had worked as a village agent. So basically his job was to meet an aircraft when it were to get on the ground and pick up mail or drop off mail. Or um, So I feel like you kind of, um, because you're exposed to it enough that you want to respect them, you know, because it's your only way out. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So how long have you been flying? I started training back in 2020 of August. And now you're a fully certified commercial pilot? I am. I fly commercially out of Bethel um, for an air taxi that flies to, uh, to the villages. And what kind of fly, uh, planes do you fly, Delana? I am currently flying the Cessna 207. How big a plane is that? It holds about seven people total, including the pilot. Okay, so seven passengers plus a pilot. Now, are you mainly transporting passengers, or do you have a lot of supplies and freight as well? Uh, it's six passengers plus the pilot, so it'd be seven people total. Um, the air taxi I currently am flying for flies both passengers and cargo, making passengers the priority. Just because of the demand out there, you um, there's so much stuff that you need to send out to the villages. Yeah, and, and like pretty much everything, right? Food, uh, equipment. What's what's some of the cargo you typically will will uh, will fly with? Yeah, the things. Um, it's almost anything you would need to survive, in a sense. I guess if you want to put it into perspective, we'll fly with groceries, school supplies if necessary, um, medication for the clinic, um, mail. Uh, yeah, essentially anything you would get at the normal store, <laughs> you know, it all has to yeah. be out. Yeah. Delana, do you fly every single day then? Uh, uh, my current job is two weeks on, two weeks off. So the two weeks I am at work, I fly every day. And how many flights a day do you fly? It, um, it varies. It's very, um very dependent on the demand. Uh, it could be from just seven flights a day to easily, you know, three or four. And about how long are each one of these flights? Um, I mean, there's a variety of different places that are not, that are all, um, they're not the same up amount of distance so there's some that are you know six minutes away or there there are some villages that are 45 minutes away so 
for somebody like myself down here in the lower 48, when I think of, a, of an airplane flight, they're, they're usually at least an hour long, even like a little regional flight to get to a hub or something like that. But some of these flights are, are, are pretty short. I mean, six minutes, 10 minutes. I mean, these are communities that are, are pretty close as, as the crow flies, but but hard to access without a plane. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. I mean, some obviously... A lot of them are uh, located on uh, near a river, so about 90% of the locals have boats and access to boats. So if anyone, they, if they really wanted to, they could get to, they could travel by boat. Um, but in order to, you know, send out groceries or um, medication, that's also very reliable on airplane transportation. Elena, are there a lot of other Yupik women flying planes? Um, I think so. I have personally never met another Yupik commercial pilot, but there definitely are other commercial native um, Yupik pilots. Um, but I, yeah, for me personally, I have never been as exposed as I wish, just because it's not as common. But you know that it's it's still a thing. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, Delana, how dangerous is this type of flying? I think everyone wants to know. Uh, well, you know, it's just like you would, I, I don't know how to put it into perspective. It could be get pretty scary very quickly just because weather is pretty crazy out there. It could change very fast. Uh, so you have to be very aware. Um, just the conditions of flying out there. In the weather, um, like let's say you could be in clear blue skies, then it just turns into snowing out of nowhere. Um, that just affects your visibility. Or um, I guess short answer is it could be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it. So snow, um, visibility. What are some other kinds of weather conditions that cause hazards up there in the sky for you um like it could get i don't know there's some a lot of it is icing conditions um just because you know in the winter it gets super cold and then if you were to get into clouds then icing is very likely to happen um and um snow that could affect your visibility it could go from 10 miles to just you can't really see anything in front of you um let's say you're going to the village it's super windy uh runway could be just very icy um just a variety of different things that i don't know one can't really imagine unless you come across that you know mm-hmm. delina how fast are these planes you fly uh, if you put it into miles per hour perspective, I think the plane that I fly currently goes up to maybe 130 miles per hour, give or take, maybe less. Now, you talked about taking off and landing, especially during during rough times. Is is that one of the most challenging parts? Is, is just taking off, the taking off and the landing? Uh, it could be. Um, just, you know, there's so many different 
situations that you really have to be careful and consider. Uh, but I think, you know, on a very good day, all conditions perfect. I, those are my favorite parts. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, how long are the runways typically that you have? Um, well, Bethel is pretty long. It's like a standard city pavement, paved runway. Um, let's see. There are some that are pretty short. I don't even know how to put it into perspective. Like there's one that is at least 3,000 in length. Um, they're all gravel runways if you're flying to the village. Uh, it could be less than 3,000, but a lot of people say that that's not long. I think it's pretty long. I'm thinking of a typical... Uh, a, a big runway for like a commercial airliner, like what a Delta plane would fly. And I think most of those are, those are like at least a mile long, aren't they? Those big runways. Um, I have no idea. I really don't know. Um, just in the perspective, like let's say I bring in somebody from the lower 48 and they see these runways. They're like, that's like a third road. But <laughs> I think it looks like a runway. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like... don't have cars, you know? Like, I grew up in a village with no cars or no roads, so I don't... I never knew what to put it into perspective with, but, you know, for someone to come from down south, then that's a very common thing I've heard. Delaney, I'm really enjoying this conversation, learning about uh, what it takes to fly planes out of Bethel, Alaska. We're going to talk more with Delena and our other guests right after this break. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848 if you have a question. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week, it demonstrated the possibility for the court to take another look at cases that might also affect tribal sovereignty, land, and people. We're talking about how decisions of the Supreme Court affect tribes. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Native women who pilot aircraft today. We're hearing about how they got into the profession and challenges they face. Any pilots listening? 1-800-996-2848, the number to call to share your insights. We're speaking now with Delana Fox, a commercial pilot. She flies taxi flights in a Cessna out of Bethel, Alaska. Delana, I'm thinking you've got a few crazy pilot stories. Tell us one. <laughs> uh, well, I have only started my two shifts of work so far, and I'm about to leave for my third one in a couple of days. So I feel like I'm still accumulating stories, and I don't quite have 
you know, the best story. <laughs> um, you got to have some cool stories, though, even interesting passengers, interesting cargo, interesting sights. Um, let's see. I do have some really fun conversations with passengers. Um, just, you know, I get the privilege of being able to fly to these villages and having grown up there, I speak the language, the Yupik language very fluently. Well, I wouldn't say very fluently, but I speak it fluent enough to have conversations. Um, so I, so far all the encounters I have are like, whoa, you are a pilot, like you're native and you're female and you're talking to us in Yupik. Um, or just people who think I am just a ticket agent walking them to their airplane. And then I hop into the pilot seat and like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so far, those have been really fun encounters of just like, you know, seeing the face of seeing something that they don't, that they see isn't normal. Um, you know, um, I think is a huge privilege. So you're kind of doing it all, right? You're handling the baggage. You're doing the ticket agent stuff. Um, you're flying the plane, right? Do you serve beverages as well, Delena? No. <laughs> um, so, like, out of Bethel, we do have ticket agents. We have rampers. We have other people, you know, um, loading the airplane if necessary. Um, but once I do get into the village, then I kind of am kind of, you know, working all the roles as necessary, um, loading my own airplane and then loading like all the luggage and people. And then once they get into Bethel, then they have other people who fill in those roles. Delana, this just sounds like such a cool and exciting career. And, uh, Please, please stay with us. We want to talk more with you, but but I do want to talk to another native pilot on our show today and learn more about this exciting career. Daniela Petiti is up in Diane Diego Mohawk territory. She's a flight instructor at First Nations Technical Institute. She is Plains Cree from Waterhen Lake Cree Nation. Daniela, thanks for talking with us today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having Hi. me today. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. Um, Daniela, when did you start flying? Um, I started my training in 2015. So about seven years. Um, so I'm interested in more about what it takes to fly. What are the barriers? Is it expensive to, to become a pilot? Uh, yeah, actually, that's usually the number one. Um, I like to call them challenges and not barriers. That's what we call them here at FNTI. Uh, we don't want to use barriers. We'd like to use the word challenges because we can overcome all of them. So financially, fly like flying is expensive. And it's more expensive when you're learning because you're going to be using more time. Um, I also like to think from an instructor perspective, uh, loneliness. So a lot of students we have come from the north to learn to fly and so they have to leave their communities their support system and so yeah i think that's quite those are challenges that we definitely face and with regard to these challenges what are some of the most difficult challenges when students are learning that skill for how to fly a plane um definitely i was i would think that um 
students tend to focus on what they did incorrectly and not so much on what they did correctly. Um, so that's really hard to try to get them out of that mindset. Um, so we just try to keep them positive on the right track and make sure that they're satisfied after every flight. Uh, so determination and motivation for sure. Do you have a lot of female students in your flight program? Oh, it's nice to hear these females talking that we have, you have other people like me on the show. We have a large amount. So we're almost at 50%. Um, so we have quite a few and they're all indigenous, which is amazing. That is super awesome. What do you think is driving this um, increased interest in, in Native women as pilots? Well, I always think it's because we have female leadership, but culturally, I think Indigenous women are thought of, you know, as strong foundation of the home. Um, so I believe that's partially why we have a lot of Indigenous females going for this career, because they're, they feel like they're strong enough to do that um, culturally we are thought of as strong women. So I would see that it's more likely for women to go into aviation. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. So earlier we heard Delaney talk about she's running or flying these taxi flights out of Bethel and, and some of the supplies she, she carries and cargo and things like that. Um, the, the women that you train, what kinds of piloting or, or planes are they going to be flying and, and what are they going to be flying those planes for specifically? Um, well, most of the students, like all our training is done on Cessna 172s, um, so they're really uh, slow. <laughs> I like to think of them as like little little buzzers in the air that are just, you're learning to fly, everything slow. The aircraft wants to, you know, stay in straight and level flight. And um, But the students from here go to all sorts of operations, uh, medevac, cargo, uh, like, uh, I believe it's Delena, like operations like her air taxis that are flying into communities, cargo, um, air Quebec. So they start trying to move their way up to flight line um, on larger operations. And then hopefully one day Air Canada, WestJet, and maybe other locations in the world. Mm. What about, like, you know, I've been up to Alaska before and they've got all those flights for like sightseeing and things like that. Do any of your pilots do that? Um, not that I know of, like mostly everyone has like pretty high goals. Like they all want to be captains one day for Air Canada or, you know, larger operations. Um, we do have some that want to go um, back to their communities and fly in the north. So I believe there's an operation called Air Tindy. And I'm hoping my student who's from Northwest Territories ends up there eventually. So she can fly in the north and she's close to her family, home base. So, Daniela, is that the goal then for a lot of your students is to graduate up to, to the big jets and flying for a, a large commercial airliner at some point? Yeah, I think a lot do have that goal. But um, there are some like me who probably want to stay and um, smaller operations because for myself, like I've never left where I'm at at NTI. I just went straight from training into instructing. And then I realized as I've been here, like how awesome it is, like bringing in all these women, like recruiting others and then pushing, training them up and pushing them out the door and knowing that we're putting our people all across Canada and how awesome that is. 
And is the demand there as soon as these folks come out of school? Are, are there jobs available for them to fly? Oh, yeah. Mostly a lot of them already are employed by the time they graduate. So they start making their connections their last year here and people start calling them up and um, they slowly make their connections and then they go to their companies. How's the pay? Um, as a flight instructor, not the greatest. Uh, I think we're the lowest paid in Canada, but I feel like we probably get the most satisfaction out of our jobs. So obviously I'm not in it for the pay. I'm more in it for like when I'm an old lady, I want to say I taught so many indigenous people to fly and how awesome that is. Oh, <laughs> that's really super cool. You tell your grand grandchildren about all, all the training you did, all the people that you trained, all the pilots that you made. Um, so I, I'm interested in, I mean, do you own your own plane? Myself? Oh, gosh, I just said we make the lowest. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely not. Um, I don't own a plane, but I'm lucky to be able to fly what we have here. Um, we actually had a hangar fire in February and lost all our aircraft. Um, our hangar was from World War One, I, I think, or two, and it burned, everything burned inside. So we're currently leasing aircraft from other operations. Oh, geez. Wow. Well, these Cessna 172s, uh, about how much does one cost? Oh, you know what? I haven't even looked into that. I guess it would depend on the year. Um, so I don't think there's that quite expensive, maybe like maybe 150, 160,000. Hmm. And then about how old, at what point does a plane like that just get too old to, to still fly? Oh, well, they're all really old. <laughs> so a new one would cost a lot more. Um, but the old ones we fly, everyone trains on older. Like, you're not going to train a new pilot on a new aircraft. Uh, so most of our planes, I think the oldest in our fleet was older than I am. And so I am in my 30s. So that kind of shows you what kind of aircraft are out there and, you know, what people are training on. Well, Native America Calling, we're all about storytelling here, and I asked Elena one earlier. So do you have any cool, exciting stories to tell us as a flight instructor? Um, well, cool and exciting as a flight instructor. Or I just guess, being in planes um, flying? Well, one cool thing that had happened uh, for me during my time as a flight instructor was I taught a... Uh, indigenous girl from bc uh she was doing her commercial flight training and she was examined by a indigenous uh examiner female so it was like three females in a link i thought like a chain so myself as the instructor and then my student as uh the commercial student doing her licensing and then she was being examined for her flight test by a female indigenous examiner and so I felt like, you know, we made history there by having that happen. Yeah, for sure. All the way indigenous, all the way across that whole that whole process. That's <laughs> that's really inspiring to hear. Daniela, drones in fully autonomous aircraft, we hear so much about that trend. Are, are they a, th a threat to, to the careers of pilots like yourself and the people you teach? Uh, no, I don't think so myself. I'm actually doing drone training right now. Um, so I'm just trying to adapt and expand as well. And I feel like 
in aviation, they are just going to adapt and expand. Like that's more of a, a something to assist maybe and do things that maybe aren't um, required. Like maybe we can send something by drone instead of, you know, firing up the plane and flying five minutes down the road or across the lake, you know, maybe we can just drone it over there. So I feel like those are just kind of like little advances and small help, like things that could help later on. So you see a world where um, automated flights, drones, and, and, and piloted flights work together as opposed to one taking the other one out, so to speak? Yeah, because, you know, I, I don't know. I feel as an Indigenous person, we always adapt. So this just feels like another area where we're going to adapt. And as for aircraft flying themselves, I don't know if we're there yet. <laughs> Um, but if we do get there, um, eventually everyone's just going to have to adapt, but I'm not really afraid for my career in my lifetime, to be honest. Well, it sounds like with all of the, the unique challenges that you folks face in these smaller planes, in these short little flights can be really hazardous conditions, the geography that you're dealing with. Cause I know like some of these big jets, they can put those on autopilot and just pretty much go to sleep. Can you do that in these Cessnas that, that you fly? Well, um, in the newer aircraft, they do have um, things that you can do like that. But um, since we're training, we don't use autopilot. And I think even in the aircraft we had that were destroyed, they, they shut off the autopilot because um, we want the pilots that we're training to have a good base, a good foundation, and be able to rely on themselves for pilot decision-making, observing, and, like, all the things you learn about um, when you start flying. So I feel like, I don't know, I haven't even used autopilot. Um, probably maybe somebody else on the panel could definitely would know more about that. Um, but I'm all hands-on, as I think most pilots would be who aren't flying commercially. Daniela, I'm thinking of the young listener on our show today, listening in, and they're thinking, this sounds really cool. I want to go up to Canada. I want to go up to Alaska. I want to be a pilot. I want to get into this business. Uh, words of wisdom, what can you offer? Well, I always like to mention that, you know, you don't need to be a straight-A student. Um, I wasn't a straight-A student. You don't have to be amazing at math because I wasn't <laughs> and I'm still here doing this and I'm even able to teach others to fly. So really all you need is the motivation, the like determination, um, the possibilities, like have, have those and know that you can do it because I think a lot of pilots think maybe, I don't know, I can't really say, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of people think that being a pilot is, you know, really hard and it is difficult, but it's not impossible. And I honestly, now that I'm teaching others to fly, I feel like I can teach anyone to fly if they just want to. Are there education requirements, high school diploma, some college, what's required? Um, all that we require here and that most operations require is your grade 12. And, you know, it would be helpful if you had higher math. But if you didn't, that's okay, too. And from the time somebody comes into your school, somebody ambitious, they really want to learn about how long does it take for them to complete the program and, and get that certification to be a commercial pilot? 
So our operation is three years and you leave with an advanced aviation diploma and a lot of hours, a lot of experience and pretty much just ready to go out on the job and get any kind of job you would like um, as long as you're just ready to go and you have that determination and don't give up trying. So if there are any listeners, please come and apply because we're waiting for you. We're talking now with Daniela Petiti. She is a flight instructor in Mohawk Territory in Canada. Great conversation, learning all about what it takes to be a commercial pilot serving in a rural native community, parts of Alaska, parts of Canada. Exciting stuff. And if you've got a question or a comment to share, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We are waiting for our listeners to join us on this show. Really exciting stuff. We'll be back right after this break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We're talking with some Native women today about what it's like to be a commercial pilot. And there is still time to join our conversation. 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Before break, we're talking with Daniela, and she is a flight instructor. Daniela, I've got one more question before we go on to our next guest. Is um, I want to know, female pilots... Uh, is it tough? Do you think uh, women face some unfair scrutiny um, as pilots compared to men? Um, I would hope not, but I'm sure they must. Um, like I said, I've been lucky enough to be set and implanted here at FNTI, so I haven't really encountered anything. But I do know as a student uh, flying into other locations, um, I've had, you know, men approach me and say, you know, you're too pretty to be fi- like flying. You should just get married. And I thought, wow, like amazing of you to come up to me and say that. And I'm on my 300 nautical mile right now. And it was really great to meet you and have a great day. So I'm sure it does happen out in the workplace. Um, but I have no idea and I haven't experienced that. And so I've been really um, lucky for sure. Mm. Yeah, it's unfortunate to hear stories like that, but uh, you're just so positive and you just project so much <laughs> really good energy. And uh, I'm sure everybody that, that flies with you just is is consumed by that. Um, so it's great talking with you. I'm excited to introduce one more pilot on our show today. Let's meet Shadinyan Van Campen. She's up in Dawson City, Canada, where she is a commercial pilot. She is Champagne and Ashiak First Nation. Shadinian, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Tell us, what kind of planes do you fly? So I only have my single engine um, commercial license, so I'm flying Cessnas, uh, four or six seaters. 
And what inspired you to become a 206 is okay. So a little bit smaller than, uh, than the other ones we were talking about earlier, like the 172s, I think. So what inspired you to become a, a pilot, Shadinian? Well, I was uh, nearing my time in high school, my graduation time in high school. There's a lot of pressure on us in my school anyways to be applying for university and get your courses together to get into the program you want to be in. But my grades were honestly not great. Um, and I knew that you could go to flight school without having you know, good grades, or they don't even look at your transcript, you just hand them money and they train you. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do that. I think it would be fun. And that's how I ended up in it. So you've been a pilot now for how long? Oh, I started training in 2016. And I didn't become commercially licensed until 2020. So so about two years as, as a as a fully licensed commercial pilot. Awesome. And what do you find most challenging about flying? Mm, well, for me, each flight is like a big kind of responsibility. It kind of takes a lot out of me. So I think the most challenging part is just the fact that I really feel like I need to show up 100%. And it's, it's not casual at all. Um, I'm, a, I'm quite a cautious person as well, and maybe a little bit, not nervous, but I, I, I take it super seriously. So the challenging part is just that it's um, very consuming. Like every flight for me is like, I'm really thinking about it beforehand. It's a big deal. Like it's never just like, oh, I'm just going to jump in and go. So I think that's, uh, it takes a lot out of me, but it's also very rewarding. And what's your favorite part of just being up there flying every day? Um. Well, I think my favorite part is just how the scenery's, scenery changes over the summer um every day is a different load it's a different place you're going uh i like the different things you can spot around the yukon right now we're just starting the forest fire season so that's really cool um and later in the summer there'll be you know fields of fireweed so hills of pink i really like that um we're right next to the tombstone mountains and that's a super popular sightseeing destination so that's really super beautiful to check out and yeah, no two days are the same, so that's what I like. Let's go to the phones. We've got Caitlin listening in Phoenix, Arizona online. Caitlin, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Caitlin. Oh. I'm a bit nervous. This is my first time calling on the live station. No problem. What's your question? I just wanted to talk about my experience. So I'm 22 years old, and I come from Winter Rock, Arizona. So that's on the Navajo Nation, and I'm I'm Navajo. So uh, right now I am doing my pilot training with uh, AeroGuard in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's a two-year intense program that heads straight to the airline. They actually partnership with SkyWest. So after I'm done completing my training, it starts from the private pilot all the way to instrument. And then um, I think it's a multi-engine and then commercial and then CFI and then a double CFI. CFI is just like a certified flight instructor. And that's the time where you build flight hours to become uh, commercial. And commercial doesn't necessarily mean that you fly for the airlines, it just means that commercial that you can get paid for flying. 
Um, so basically seven ratings that you get with um, this program that I'm in. Um, and then after we're done with the program, we can um, partner with SkyWest and have an interview and possibly get hired with them. So I'm in my first month of training into my private pilot license. And I got to tell you, it's a hell of a lot. <laughs> um, it's a lot more than I anticipated. Um, but I think the main thing that any anybody can become a pilot, anybody at all. You don't have to excel as much in academics or excel in a different part of area, academic area. It's mm -hmm. just that... As long as you have the discipline, the determination, the passion, the drive to actually fly and to train. And so that's where I'm at right now because I'm just really motivated to have the career that I want. Um, before this, I was actually majoring in civil engineering, but decided to stop and just continue with my dream. You know, I'm kind of just like a send it, book it kind of way. Like, I'm going to do this because mm -hmm. it, this is what I want. And, you know, I'm not getting any older or any younger. So made the decision. Um, okay. Most of the challenges right. are, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Caitlin, thank you. Thank you for calling. This is so inspiring. And it, it sounds like you've got just uh, a great head on your shoulders and you've got a, a really good program that you're, your training there for uh, ultimately hoping to be a, a pilot there with Sky West. Really exciting. So best of luck to you going forward with all of your training and your career. And Shadin uh, Yen, here we have Caitlin in Arizona. She's just getting started. Any any words of advice or wisdom you can offer her as she continues on this journey of becoming a commercial pilot? Um, yeah, I would just say keep at it. One thing that I learned through my training and then working in aviation is that there's always going to be delays popping up and it can be a bit discouraging. Like just the day-to-day -day ones, like, Oh, it's poor weather today. Your flight's canceled or the plane needs maintenance versus maybe running out of funding or something goes wrong. It's super common. So I would just say, don't let that discourage you because that's as soon as you learn to accept it, you realize it's going to go on for the rest of your flying career. Delays are just part of the industry. Um, that's the one thing I would point out to someone at the beginning of their journey. And yeah, good luck. I'm interested in learning more about the maintenance side of it. Um, flying these smaller planes and some of these uh, smaller airports and, and some of these smaller companies, is that part of your job too as a pilot to, to do some of that maintenance or at least be, be pretty up to speed on some of those issues? No, so you do learn about the aircraft systems um, during your, uh, like, theory. They call it ground training. Um, but this is just so that you can keep on top of them and be aware of when something's not right while you're flying. Uh, it's actually kind of the opposite as a pilot. You're not really supposed to touch anything. Like, there's a couple little things you can do, but almost everything needs to be done by an actual aircraft mechanic. Um, and the planes go in for maintenance every 50 hours, uh, commercially anyways. So they're pretty well maintained, but snags do come up and we are trained on, yeah, what to look for when things don't look right so that we can stay on top of that and report it to the mechanic before we get to it, you know? 
Shadinian, tell us about your family. How do they feel about you flying? Oh, they're very uh, proud of me. They're very happy, you know. They've always been super supportive, so it wouldn't really matter what I was doing. Um, my father is actually a pilot, and he had his own charter operation, but he sold it when I was born because he had to be a stay-at-home dad. So I think he's very happy to um, see someone kind of carrying on what he was doing because I'm doing the same kind of flying. I'm flying into the same airstrips that he did 25 years ago before I was born. So I think that's probably kind of exciting for him. Now, are you home, away from home often? Um, well, I already live, I guess if you mean home, like my home in Dawson City where I live alone, no, I'm always there at the end of the day. Um, every couple of weeks we go into the bush to do a fuel haul, and that's like three or four days away from town civilization. Um, but it's, it's not like an airline pilot where they're going, you know, they're always staying in a different hotel in a different country or whatever. Okay, so most of the flights there and back, and, and you get to sleep in your own bed every evening, so that must be nice to, to stay close to home like that. Um, interesting stories. Uh, what kind of things have you seen up there, experiences have you had? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm not sure uh, which ones I should share. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't have like a lot of hours yet. So I guess I'll tell a story about the first time I had a major like stomach drop because I was, that had quite an effect on me. Um, so I was flying to a community called Beaver Creek and I was there to pick up someone, I believe. I can't remember what I was doing, but it's about an hour flight. And on that day, it was sort of, low clouds and low weather so um what i was doing instead of flying sort of direct um the bigger like jets or anyone flying on instruments they can fly through the crowd clouds they don't need to see what they're doing but that's not what we're doing so i'm following a river because this river leads to the community so i'm overflying the river and i thought oh, okay well i think it looks clear on the other side of this ridge here there's sort of a mountain ridge in between me and the community and I thought, okay, well, if I can climb up through the ridge, I should be able to pop down the other side, and then there will be Beaver Creek. Like, I won't have to follow the river all the way around. Um, so I climbed up, and things are looking good. There's clouds with a path open ahead of me, and I'm kind of like, okay, once I pop over here, I'll be able to see down into the valley and into the community. But I got to the top of it, and I came over the ridge, and it was just a sea of overcast cloud below me. And it doesn't sound very dramatic probably to anyone with some experience, but this was like my first summer flying and like, oh my God, my stomach dropped. And I was like, that's not what I expected to see essentially. Like I had this idea in my mind that it would be clear and I'd keep going. So kind of had a little moment where I was like, oh, what happened? And then I turned around and went back down the valley and was fine. But um, I learned a really big lesson that day. And yeah, I think these are the kind of moments that bush pilots kind of will always come up come up against in their career and you either learn from it or you don't but um that was sort of a scary moment for me and i think it kind of describes bush flying as well yeah it, it sounds really scary and the, these smaller planes too i mean they bounce around a lot too like the turbulence that takes some getting used to um not really well <laughs> Passengers don't like it. It's super common for passengers to be ill, but it never has really bothered me as the pilot. Um, and you do what you can to avoid it, too. Like, once you learn how to 
um, once you learn how to read the wind, where it's coming from, how it's shaping over the mountains and where it might be turbulent, you kind of uh, make an effort to avoid that. Or if it's bumpier down below in the hills, down below in the hills, then you're probably going to climb and try and avoid that, usually for the passenger's comfort. Well, let's ask Delana too. Delana, air sickness, is that something that you've had to deal with in your career or are you just a natural up there in the air? Uh, for me personally, is, is that what you're asking? Yeah. I When I first started flying, well, growing up, let's say, when I was um, traveling a lot in planes, I would get air sick. Um, then once I started flight training and my first couple of hours, through private pilot, I would get pretty air sick um, on longer flights. But now I think I feel, I wouldn't say conditioned into it, but I I don't get air sick quite as often as I did before. Actually, I don't even remember the last time I was air sick, but, you know, it just you do it so much that your body just gets used to it. Mm-hmm. Daniela, when you have uh, new recruits coming into your program, is air sickness an issue for a lot of them? Um, I actually haven't ever experienced that uh, at all uh, with any of my students or myself. Um, yeah, no, I haven't encountered it. I guess you just come into the field, you know, knowing if you get, you know, car sickness, maybe that would be an indication that you'd have kind of maybe some sickness in the air. But I myself haven't encountered it, um, even when practicing spins or doing spiral dives or anything crazy. Uh yeah, no. No for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a really fun show. I've had a really enjoyed talking to you all, Delena, Daniela, and Shadinyan. Thank you all for coming on our show today and giving us a peek into your world as commercial pilots. Please stay safe, okay? Join us tomorrow for a show about the Supreme Court and the recent decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists, Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibone, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslyn Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. CMS program, I contact the local Indian health care provider. I Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.